We, uh, I remember this one year I was coaching basketball, and there was this kid on my team, and he was constantly getting into trouble. Um, this one time, uh, toward the beginning of the season, he did something uh, naughty, and his dad caught him. It's a bad combination to both be naughty and indiscreet, okay? And he was both. And so this guy got in trouble. I mean, red-handed. But he didn't know that his dad knew. And so when his dad approached him about what he had done, to ask him if he indeed done this, uh, the kid, my player, he had two options, right? Number one, he can come clean and admit what he'd done. Number two, he can lie about it and cover it up. Now, which do you think that he did? Right. Good decisions do not make for good sermon illustrations. So yeah, he, he did the wrong thing, and he lies. And, he, and his dad is telling me this story because it ended up part of his punishment was missing some basketball games, so that's where the coach came in while we had that conversation. What was interesting to me, as he was telling me this story, he said, man, if my son would have just simply humbled himself and admitted what he had done wrong, Right? If he had just come clean to me, man, I would have forgiven him, and we'd have been good, like relatively no to low punishment. But because he lied, he says because he was too proud to admit what he had done, it made it a million times worse. And most of the punishment really came from how he reacted to the things that he had done. And I believe this father-son conflict that I was witnessing is at the core of our relationship with God. And, and the root of all of our problems is the same root that caused this basketball player to make the wrong decision, and the solution to all of our problems is the very choice that he didn't make. In, in chapter 1, we've been walking through the book of Philippians. In chapter 1, if you haven't been with us, we said that we have been called, Paul says, we have been called to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? We, our kind of our working definition of this was to live in a way that shows Jesus is worth more than anything. And this was exemplified in Paul's life. He says, for me, to live is Christ. To live is to live for Christ. It, to live is to live through Christ. And he goes, to die? That's even better, because I get to go be with him. Our whole life purpose is to magnify Jesus, whether by life or by death. And in chapter 2, Paul is now going to show us what this looks like. And I believe he shows, my argument today is going to be, there is one foundational sort of defining virtue, which means a good characteristic of the believer. In fact, it's, it's the foundation. If, if we ex- live this virtue out in our lives, I believe all other issues will become obliterated. There's a, there was a problem that was going on in the Philippian church at the time. They were having some, some division, okay, having some fight. This was a baseball game that happened just a week ago. The dude actually cold-cocked the other guy, was suspended for seven games. Um, and I thought it was kind of appropriate election year to have the red and the blue fighting. So kind of go with that too, and then quickly go move on. Um, but Paul is going to address, there's two things. There was division that was coming from without the church. He's going to talk about that at the beginning of chapter 3. There's also division that's occurring within the church, and he addresses that in chapter 2. And I think, or in chapter 4, excuse me, at the beginning of chapter 4. I believe that's why in chapter 2 he brings this topic up. He's going to talk to the Philippians about how to live in community together. And I believe this one defining virtue of the believer 
If we live this out, then whether it's at home, as parent, as, as, as sibling, as, as husband or wife, at, at work, with our friends, with our enemy, with God himself, this virtue is the key to what God has called us into as believers. And so let's dive in together. Verse 1. You're going to see an if-then principle going on here in verses 1 and 2. This is the New International Version that we have on the screen. But we allow you to follow along in your own translation. We're not heavy-handed like that. So verse 1. Therefore, if you, if, if you have any encouragement, here's the if statement, from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Now, I believe this word, if you look in the original Greek, would have been better translated since. He's not really saying, like, he's not wondering, is there comfort from God loving us? Is there oneness in the Spirit? It would really be better translated since. Since these things are true, since there's encouragement from being in Christ, since there's comfort in his love, then this ought to be the result. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Now this is incredible. Notice that Paul doesn't say, make my joy complete by getting me out of prison. He doesn't say, make my joy complete by getting me off death row, which if you remember, that's where Paul is as he's writing this letter. He says his, he is linking his personal joy to the unity of this Philippian church hundreds of miles away. And Paul is is exemplifying here the very thing that he is going to call the Philippians to. And he says, if you all are one, then my joy is complete. It's an incredibly selfless statement. And and so here in verse 3, before we talk about what this virtue is that you and I so desperately need, he's going to show us the opposite of that virtue, okay? Verse 3, do nothing, do nothing, you know what that means in the Greek? It means nothing. Never, never, ever, ever, ever do anything ever, are you with me, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. What does he mean by that? You remember back in, in chapter 1 when we were talking about Paul and he said that there are those out there that are preaching the gospel out of rivalry or selfish ambition against me. Remember, they said, it's not enough that you're following Jesus. We want you to follow us instead of Paul. This word is the same word that he's using here. And it means to basically like when someone's running for office to promote themselves. And he says, don't do anything just to simply elevate yourself. The word is also translated rivalry. In a rivalry, you want to be better than the other person, right? It's all about self and promoting yourself at the expense of other people. And the other word he says never do anything with is in vain conceit. Or the King James Version says vain glory. The word in the Greek, it meant groundless, empty pride or self-esteem, which I love this. What he's saying is you glory in yourself. You boast about yourself and that is in vain. He says, I love you, but you don't have much to boast about. Okay, your boasting, your glorying in yourself is, is empty. And it's sort of like an illustration that helped me think about this was a balloon, okay? When, when I puff into this balloon, all right, as I blow air into this balloon, what happens to this balloon? It gets bigger, right? Very good. So the more air that I blow into this balloon, the bigger its appearance is, right? You notice it more. And if I continue to do that, well, it would probably pop. 
but what's on the inside? It's empty, right? So on the outside, its appearance gets bigger, but on the inside, it is empty. And this is what he's saying. You puff yourself up. You make yourself look bigger, but on the inside, it's empty and it's hollow. Sorry. That was inevitable. Um, And I love this. Basically, in, in other places, Paul says, do not think more highly of yourself than you ought And I I found this picture, which I thought kind of encapsulated it very well. That we, in our own minds, have an idea about who we are, which does not match reality. Okay? And this is the heart of what Paul is saying. And really, it's a matter of pride. Get it? I know. It was an accidental pun, and I just kind of ran with it. Um, Augustine, uh, the church father, Augustine of Hippo, he said this. He said, pride is the mother of all sin." Pride is the mother of all sin, or, and it's also been said, and it's the same idea, that pride is at the root of all sin. Now, that doesn't mean that pride is the worst sin. Every sin in and of itself is enough to be condemned in the sight of God. But, but what his point is, it is the foundation, the mother of sin. It means all other sin comes from this sin. So when I lie, it's because I'm proud. When I hate someone else and elevate me, it's coming the root, the root of it all is pride. And you know what is at the center of pride? Literally, it's an I, right? Pride is all about me. And this is the very problem before you and I were even created. This is where the root of all sin came from. You remember what happened to Lucifer, which there's an I in the middle of Lucifer. Um, Isaiah 14, you said in your heart, you said in your heart, this is talking about Lucifer, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. And then I cannot even believe you would dare to utter this statement. I will make myself like the most high. Five times he declares, I, I, I. Pride is the elevation of self instead of the elevation of God, the only one who is due to be elevated. Pride was also the cause of of man's sin. You go back to Genesis 3. For God knows, this is Lucifer lying to man, dragging them into the same pride that he has in his heart. For God knows that when you eat from it, eat from the tree that he was told they were told not to, your eyes will be open and what? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he says, instead of letting God be God, you can be God. And that's the lie that they bought into, and we say pride before the fall, and that's exactly what happened. Pride came before the fall of all of mankind. Now, some of us, we might say, well, man, I don't struggle with pride, because I don't think I'm great at all. In fact, I think I'm terrible. And, And you degrade yourself and constantly think negatively about yourself. Well, here's the tricky thing about pride. Um, I think of it as two sides of a coin. And on the one side is arrogance. And some of us deal with pride in the sense of puffing ourselves up. But on the other side, it can be insecurity. And that is just the other side of pride. Because it is still a preoccupation with who? With myself. So whether you think you're the best or you think you're the worst, your eyes are still on yourself, and that's pride. Pride can look very different. 
but it's at the root of all things. So if, if pride is at the root of all sin, then what is the mother, what is the root of all virtue? It must be the opposite of pride. Well, what's the opposite of pride? It's humility. Humility. I believe that humility is the mother of all virtue. It is the defining characteristic of the believer. Every other good thing, every other good characteristic that comes from the believer stems from humility. And this is what Paul says, too, in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, here is its opposite, in humility value others above yourselves. Now he's going to define what it looks like. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Pride focuses on self. Humility focuses on others. Now, often when we think of the word humility, we kind of, we have some wrong definitions of it. We associate it with the word humiliate, like when you got wedgies in junior high. Okay, that's not humility. That's humiliation or puberty or, you know, acne. Junior high is a rough time. Um, that, that's humiliation. That's, that's not humility. So first of all, I want us to define what humility is not, and I think that'll help us clarify what humility is. Three things. Number one, humility is not low self-esteem. It is not low self-esteem. That's what we call worm theology. And oftentimes, even as believers, we can, be, we, can be, um, we can do this, where we think, I'm such a terrible person, I'm so awful. And again, remember we said that's just insecurity, that's just degrading yourself is, is not humility. And C.S. Lewis, he said it so well, he goes, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is thinking of yourself less. And you see the difference? Humility is not low self-esteem. It's actually no self-esteem. I'm not even esteeming myself. I'm not even looking at myself at all. And Philip Yancey, I love, I love this working definition he gave. He says, humility does not mean, it does not mean I grovel before God like the Asian court officials who used to wiggle along the ground like worms in the presence of their emperor. It means rather that in the presence of God, I gain a glimpse of my true state in the universe, which exposes my smallness, and at the same time, it reveals God's greatness. It means that if I see God for who he really is, if I elevate him to his proper place as the only God, the only one to be worshipped in the universe, that I see in light of who he is, who I am. And I worship accordingly. You see, pride is the lie that I can be like God, that I should be like God. Humility. Humility is truth, seeing ourselves for who we really are, his creatures. Obedient unto him and dependent on him because we can't obey him on ourse- by ourselves. So secondly, humility is not taking zero interest in yourself. Okay, that's not humility either. You come in here this morning, hair's uncombed, you stink to high heaven, you haven't eaten in days, like it's not about me. You know, you just kind of come in, like I'm not, I'm taking, you know, I'm not esteeming myself, I'm not valuing myself. No, for the love of everything, take a shower, okay? That's not humility. Look at, notice what he says carefully. He says in humility, value others above yourselves. So it starts in the way we think about other people. Am I I valuing them above myself, or am I looking out for number one? And then in verse four, I like the way the New American translates it a little bit better. It says, do not merely look out for your own interests, your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Now, now understand me here. Remember when Jesus said, and it's been said, it was said in the law as well, love your neighbor as what? What's the standard? Love your neighbor as yourself. Because guess what? We have no problem loving ourselves. We have no problem looking out for ourselves. So he says, just in the same way that you care about yourself, that you have interest in yourself, care about other people just as much. That's the call. I mean, think about this. Apply this. Like, man, after the service, I am so ready to eat, right? Like, I'm, I am so hungry. Pastor gotta eat. Pastor hungry, right? And, and so then I get to the restaurant or wherever, and I take a bite into that burger, and my hunger is satisfied, and I'm so happy. He says, in the same way that I would be just as excited as if, you know, I'm I'm going out to lunch with the Martins and I see Toad and I know how hungry Toad is and I'm watching him with anticipation. I'm like, I can't wait until he takes a bite of this burger and he eats it and I can see his hunger vanishing. I'm like, Toad isn't hungry anymore, right? Like, to be just, just as excited, to be just as four other people's needs being met, interests as my own. That's humility, working itself out in love. I'm rooting for you, Toad. (laughs) Humility understands that my needs have been met in Christ, that I have everything I need in this life for life and godliness. And when I understand that my needs are met, it's like when you take that, they tell you on the airplane, get your own oxygen mask on first before helping other people because dead people aren't very helpful. In the same way, if my needs aren't met in Christ, then I'm not free to help others. But if my needs are met in him, if he's my magnificent obsession, I'm now free to help other people because I'm good. And then the final one is uh, humility is not being a doormat. Humility is not being a doormat. We'll skip over this. I simply want to say it doesn't mean just doing whatever anybody tells you to do. Humility, loving other people, is doing what's best for them. Uh, it's not just doing whatever they command you to do. You remember that basketball player we talked about in the intro. Pride led to the lie of not wanting to admit that he was wrong. And it's only in, in humility that we will come clean, that we will admit that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. See, no one clings to a Savior. He says, Jesus said, only the sick come to the doctor. Only those who humble themselves and recognize their need for Jesus, they will come to Jesus. Humility means admitting that God is big and we are small. That he is bad, or sorry, he is good and we are bad. That we need him, that he needs nothing. It's the truth about who God is and who we are. Now, I could spend the rest of the morning trying to talk us into being humble. But that's not where Paul takes it, and so that's not where I want to go with it. What he does is he points us to the greatest example of humility in the history of the universe. And so let's look to him that we might become like him. Verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Or other translations, and I like them better, it says, have this, this, this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. We have his mind. It's not just trying to be like him. He's going to do this through us. And this word mindset, it can be translated attitude, okay? This is the perspective. This is our outlook. And Warren Wearsby says outlook determines outcome. In other words, the way that we see, the lens through which we see the world will dictate our behavior, will dictate what we do. And we've been saying it the whole series, what we become, what we behold. And if we behold Jesus and his mindset, 
we will become like him through the power of the Spirit and by the grace of God. So let's, let's look at this. Dr. F.B. Meyer, you're going to see a, a pattern here. There's a lot of initials going on in the quotes um, this week. In the whole range of scripture, the verses we're about to read, he says, this paragraph stands in almost unapproachable and unexampled majesty. This might be, you could argue, this is the most beautiful passage about Jesus in all of scripture, in all of written literature. So if you'd stand with me, and in honor of Christ, in honor of the written word about the living word, I want us to read this together, to declare this about our humble Savior. Would you read it with me? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we'll take it through verse 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. You can have a seat. This is the greatest display of humility in all of human history. David Jeremiah calls it Christ's round-trip journey from glory to glory. He left glory, and he went back to glory, but in the meantime, he took four humble steps of descent to us and for us. And we want to look at those briefly this morning. First of all, he became nothing. Verse 6, who being in very nature God. Do you understand what that means? Do I understand what that means? The other way to say it would be it's the outward expression of the inward nature. Who he was inside gets expressed outside. In other words, Jesus is God. But then it doesn't stop there. So he is God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. To be used to his own advantage could be translated to be selfishly hung onto, to be selfishly held to. Could Jesus, would it been in Jesus's rights to remain in heaven with God where he was perfectly content, thank you very much, Absolutely, it would have been right for him. It would have been okay for him. He didn't have to come, but Jesus' attitude, Jesus' mindset was not on his own comfort, was not on his own interests, but for us. And I am eternally grateful that this is the kind of God that we have. And so what he says is instead of just staying up there with God where he, where he is, has the most joy, he says, rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. This could be translated emptied himself. Now, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Now, I'm not going to have the audacity to claim that I'm exactly understanding how all of this works. This is a mystery beyond our understanding. But what we do know is that it doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his godness. He did not stop being God. And the reason we know this is because if he was no longer God, if Jesus, when he died on the cross, was not God, then the gospel is a lie. 
Because God, the only perfect, when we sinned against God, what we, we are eternally offensive to God. And the only sacrifice, the only gift that could be taken in our place is something that was eternally satisfying to God, eternally acceptable to God, and the only one who is eternally acceptable to God is God. So if Jesus isn't God, then the sacrifice is nullified and we are still without hope. But Jesus is God. So what does it mean? The word kano, the Greek word, it means to deprive something of its proper place or privilege. What Jesus sacrificed was the privileges that come with being God, the place where God dwells in the Trinity in perfect relationship. J.B. Phillips said he stripped himself of all privilege. It's not that he was no longer God, but he temporarily surrendered the privileges of being God. And then A.T. Robertson, I told you there's a lot of initials. I'm going to start going by J.B. Franchino. He goes, of what did Christ empty himself? Not of his divine nature. That was impossible. He continued to be the son of God. Undoubtedly, Christ gave up his environment of glory. The eternal, unrestrainable God gave up the privilege and place of being God. And the second step defines what that looked like, that he became a man. Not only did he become nothing, he became a man. Verses 7 and 8, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. This is what we call the incarnation, okay? You know, you see what's in the root word there in incarnation. It's carn or carne. I'm going to give you a very spiritual analogy here. Mark Driscoll talked about this. Um, Anybody here like chili? All right, praise God for chili. Um, Chili con carne, okay, sorry for butchering that, Dan, and, um, but chili con carne, what does that, what does that mean? Wilfredo, what's con carne? It means with what? With meat, praise God for chili with meat, right? Chili with meat is the most spiritual of all chilies. It's the most, it most accurately reflects God's nature. Um, chili con carne, in this wonderfully attractive packaging, um, this, what this means, Jesus, it's Jesus con carne, Jesus with meat. Jesus is God with human flesh on, and that's what the incarnation means. Incarnate, God incarnate, God with flesh. Um, Human likeness, when he uses the term human likeness here, does it mean, well, God is just kind of like a human, but he's not really a human? No, because if Jesus wasn't fully man, just like if he wasn't fully God, he wasn't an acceptable sacrifice, if Jesus wasn't fully man, then he couldn't die. God is eternal, and God is an eternal spirit. He can't be killed. So only as a man, as as a God-man, could he come as an acceptable sacrifice that would die. This big fancy word, hypostatic union, is a word that's used. If you ever go to Bible school, you'll recognize it now. It means 100% God and 100% man. Jesus was fully God and fully man. So what does it mean that he was made in the likeness of human nature? Well, Romans 8 points it out, I think, a little bit more clear when it says he was found in the likeness of sinful flesh. See, Jesus is the only man who ever came to earth that was not sinful. Why? Because he wasn't born of sinful parents like I was. No offense, guys. Um, (laughs) Jesus, remember, he was was born of the virgin birth, that that God is his only father. He did not have a, a human father And therefore, he was the only sinless man who ever lived. But you think about what Jesus did. He surrendered his boundless spirit 
and wrapped it into human flesh like you and I. And do we realize he didn't just do that for 33 years and now he gets to go back to being a boundless spirit? You realize that Jesus, when he rose again, he was risen to a new resurrected body, but Jesus will permanently, forever, be bound by a human body. He sits at the right hand of the Father right now in a human body, and he will live forever in that human body. That that sacrifice, that humility to do that for us alone is reason to thank and worship him for the rest of all time. But then he goes lower. Number three, he became a servant. He became a servant. Rather, verse seven, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Jesus becomes a servant. He could have come to earth as anything, right? He could have come as an earthly king. He could have been this kind of vivacious, charismatic, you know, king, this guy that was kind of, you know, lifted up. He could have had the body of Hercules. You know, he could have come with the charisma of, I don't know who's charismatic, Frank Sinatra, I don't know. He could have the universal appeal and celebrity of a Justin Bieber, right? The the looks of a Justin Frankino. Um, But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He came, it says, the very nature of a servant. It's the same word that it says, the very nature God. Just as he truly, literally was God, he truly, literally became a servant. He could have come as anything, but he came as a lowly Jewish carpenter to serve us. Isaiah says he didn't even look that handsome. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus tells us exactly why he came to this earth. And it wasn't to become famous. It wasn't to get, you know, to get all this fanfare. Matthew 20, it says, he came not to be served, but to serve. Think about that for a second. Full God left his glory to serve us, the ones that spit in his face and rebel. What a God we serve. And then finally, the lowest still, he became a sacrifice. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Jesus took that body and he died. And not just any death. Death on the cross was the lowest, most shameful death that a person in that culture could have experienced. That death was reserved for non-Romans. They wouldn't even do that to their, their people or for the worst of the worst criminals. Not only that, it was the most painful death imaginable. They say that of the crucifixion, to, to be crucified was to die a thousand deaths before dying. And we don't have time to get into all the details of it. But this was the most painful, shameful death to die on a cross. Jesus' sacrifice meant it, by definition, it cost him something. And more, more, more uh, initials. J.H. Jowett said it this way. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Now think about that for a second. We, we will do things for people, serving people, when, like, I'll be, I'll be nice to somebody that I like. There's no sacrifice in that. I'll do something for someone else when it's convenient for me, when it works into my schedule. That doesn't cost us anything. Ask, ask ourselves this. Is it costing me anything to be a Christian? Is it costing me anything? Because it cost Christ everything to give up his place and privileges as a God, to become a servant, and to die the worst death imaginable so that we could be reconciled to the Father. 
but then he didn't stay there. Scripture says he went from glory to glory. He left glory, but not permanently. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture says, humble thyself, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. It says, anybody who humbles himself will be exalted. Anybody who exalts himself will be humbled. Jesus humbled himself, and God exalted him, and gave him the name that is above every name. And he says, everybody, everybody on earth, every single human will bow and confess to the name of Jesus. The question is simply when. If we will humble ourselves now, admit that we are sinners, and we will humble ourselves and admit that we need a Savior. He says, you humble yourself in that way now, and in the due time, I will lift you up. I will exalt you right there with Jesus, seated at the right hand of God with me, co-heirs with Christ. If we humble ourselves now, we will be exalted with him. If we bow before him now, it means salvation. But anybody who exalts himself now and says, I don't believe in God, or I don't need God, I am God myself, I want to be like the Most High. He says, if you exalt yourself now, then on that day, you will be humbled. To bow before him then means condemnation. Rightly judged for your sins. So the question is, will we humble ourselves now? that we will be exalted then, or we will exalt ourselves now, so that we will be humbled then. And I want to close. We, Jesus is our great example. Okay, okay, what does this look like in our lives today? What is this humility, this mindset that is ours in Christ Jesus? What does this kind of look like for us today? Kind of send us home with something. And this is in your, um, your bulletin in the sermon notes, because we're going to go through it pretty quick here. Uh, but C.J. Mahaney, he wrote this book called Humility, True Greatness. And in this book, he gives us 10 ways to, that we can clothe ourselves in humility. Now, this is not works-based. We're not conjuring up this humility. This is, this is what God is doing in and through us. But 10 things, let's look at them together. First of all, follow the truth wherever it leads. Follow the truth wherever it leads. Even if it leads to your wrong. Even if it leads to your fired. Even if it leads to you need to apologize. Even if it leads to it's not the best for you, but it's best for all. Follow the truth wherever it leads. Number two, invite and pursue correction and counsel. Notice it says invite. Don't just accept it when it comes your way, but initiate correction. Seek out, find people in your life who will correct you, who, who will speak truth to you, who love you enough to confront you. And when they do, receive it. Don't fight it. Don't argue it. Don't blame shift it. Receive that correction in humility. Number three, learn from everyone, including your enemies and critics. This can be a hard one. Even somebody who doesn't like you, even someone you might not like. And even if they're saying it and they're not speaking out of humility, and maybe even what they're saying is wrong, do we have the humility to say, God, how are you using this person to point me to you, to tell me something true? That's humility. Number four, repent quickly and thoroughly. I believe growth as a believer as we grow, what growth means is there's a shorter and shorter amount of time between when we see that we're wrong and we repent. 
to acknowledge that we're wrong and come to Jesus, that we will repent thoroughly and quickly. Number five, seek and celebrate God's grace at work in other Christians. Are we as excited when we see God do something wonderful in somebody else as when he does it in us? Love your neighbor as yourself. Number six, cultivate his spirit of thankfulness. Proud people think they deserve everything. Humble people recognize that that we deserve nothing but hell and that everything that's not hell is something to be grateful for. That's grace. Number seven, listen to scripture more than yourself. Humble people realize that, that we cannot lean on our own understanding. We should not lean on our own understanding and we listen to God's word and follow what he says, not just our own thoughts and desires. Number eight, exalt the name of Jesus in all you do. The right answer to every question is whatever makes Jesus look great. That should be the guiding factor in our lives. And then number nine, laugh. Laugh. Listen, humble people can't laugh at themselves. Or sorry, proud people can't laugh at themselves. Humble people can. And I say this in all love. You're ridiculous, okay? I'm ridiculous. We have great comedic material on our hands, and let's not waste it, right? Let's be willing to laugh at ourselves when we're wrong, or we say something insanely not smart number 10 sleep humble proud people can't sleep because they're too concerned about what other people are thinking what other people are doing about winning and about losing and humble people recognize that our own we can't run our own lives let alone the known universe and so we say god you're in control i will wait upon you if you need me i'll be in bed let's pray father you are the only God. You're the only one that's good. You're the only one that's great. You're the only one that's worthy of all worship. And Father, Jesus became the great example for us of what it looks like to walk in humility. And I pray that we might meditate and fix our eyes on him, the one who left glory to humble himself for us so that we might be saved. I pray that we would be a people who would humble ourselves in your sight, admit that we're wrong, admit that we're sinful, admit that we've rebelled, admit that we need you, that we would quit the tiring game of puffing ourselves up only to fill our lives with emptiness, that we'd release the balloon and fall on your son so that just like he did with Jesus and lifted him up to give him the name that is above every name, that we would be exalted with Jesus, magnifying him through our humble dependence on you. And it's in your son's great name that we bow our knees today, that we confess today that he is Lord and Savior, that we pray. Amen.